0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz.
1: And I'm Alex Entner. This week is Media Business Matters Year in Review. We're going to take a look back at the stories that we kind of thought defined the year in media, whether it's film and television, music, or industry-specific stories, or going broader and talking about industry-wide stories as a whole.
0: And I'm not sure whether this is just recency effect, or it really just has been a tremendously busy last few weeks, if not months. Uh, But quite a bit has happened, just even as we're coming up to the very end of the year.
1: Yeah, but we want to start out with hashtag Me Too. What I kind of think is the story of the year, maybe if it's not a media-specific story, it's kind of a world country story, and really, Amanda and I have been talking about how to cover this since the allegations of Harvey Weinstein broke in the New York Times and in New York Magazine. I mean, we started thinking about it in terms of Weinstein, but then this ripple effect kept going. We had industry titans like John Lasseter and Roy Price go down. We had morning television get shaken up with Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer we had huge journalism figures like Mark Halpern and Michael Oreskes, who controlled the NPR newsroom, Leonard Lopate, John Hockenberry, and New York Public Radio.
0: Right. And I think the, the question that I have at this point is it has certainly been a significant source of news in the last few weeks, and and many of the figures involved have been media figures. But whether or not this is a media industry story, and I think here at the end of 2017, we don't yet know the answer to that. And so while several gentlemen have lost their jobs, um, what remains to be seen, and I think might be worth revisiting a year from now, is whether the organizations that they're in actually do change that a culture that has existed for some time actually comes to an end. You know, there really hasn't been stunning discussion of the need to replace these figures with women, or there haven't been clear calls for what this, these workplaces need to look like instead. Uh, rather, there's just been this swift um, firing um, or elimination of of certain individuals. And so that's, that's not nothing. It's a start. But this is not yet a significant story about change in the media industry.
1: I think what really kind of made, made me want to push this to the top is how this story has persisted. I mean, it started out with Weinstein, but that was back in October. And two and a half months later, we're still sitting here talking about this and talking about the impact. I mean, you could even look at streaming. Roy Price gone at Amazon. Jeffrey Tambor May yeah, or may not yeah. be off transparent. Yeah. Kevin Spacey from House of Cards. But
0: none of you know. There are a lot of men running a lot of things. Yeah, these are. This is not even ten percent of the offenders. You know, this is just the. I, I I'm skeptical that, and it's a skepticism that that comes from a, a lifetime of experience. And I'm glad to see this happening, but it is so far from enough. Um, and it's so preliminary uh, to be calling that, that this is actually going to mean any kind of change.
1: So let's move on to Donald Trump and another, as much as I don't want to say he is a key figure in media and how journalism works, he has really kind of shaped how journalism and media industries have functioned
0: right and i think the point to acknowledge is that a, about a year ago you know immediately post election that there was sort of a suspicion that the somewhat crazy world that we had been in through the election was going to come to an end and that we'd go back to sort of regular news cycles and and not feeling constantly overwhelmed by all kinds of information and misinformation and i think the part that we that that hasn't changed is that didn't go away I think what we what was important in two thousand seventeen to raise on a media business matters show um, was certainly the continued pace of news that has fed the businesses of channels such as CNN and Fox News, and that there's also been just a lot of smoke and noise uh, that, of course, is reasonable cause for outrage but also that a lot of the attention that has been diverted to some of the outrageous things has arguably also kept us from paying attention to many of the truly profound actions of agencies that are being done quietly. And so I think we have a press corps that is spread incredibly thin, still playing by the old logics of trying to, you know, make sure they're on top of the big, juicy, meaty story, while behind the scenes often... More quiet but yet substantive things are happening and can't fit into the cluttered news space.
1: News cycles have gone crazy this year, and it seems like news stories can break not only every day or every hour, but multiple times an hour you could be seeing something come out of Washington, DC. And I think your point leads us right into the next segment of our show where we're talking about we're talking about regulatory stories. Right. And we're gonna start out with A couple of actions at the FCC.
0: Yes, it's been an incredibly busy year in terms of changes in the the rules for how media companies operate. Um, You know, these are rules that don't even change you know once a decade, and we've had several new decisions, largely a result of an FCC. Not only controlled by Republicans, but I think, uh, in particular, this is a this is a this is an FCC of a specific order. Uh, I have been most reminded of the the FCC chair under uh, Reagan is the other one that uh, historically is sort of infamous, um, who was known for eliminating regulation of television, saying television's just a toaster with pictures, and so the idea that you know it, that television was no more. Significant a technology than the toaster, um, and actually, Pi's approach is not far off that. Um,
1: he's and, very deregulatory. He's very much, you know, Well, he he tries to argue his points as
0: that, but yeah. you know,
1: if you look at what he's doing, the impact of some of these things mm-hmm. could be huge.
0: You know, it's been easier to connect the dots between Pi and. Uh, the telecom industry that has lobbied him very hard in explaining some of the things that are going on. And it doesn't look like this is a matter of conservative principle and policy making as much as regulatory capture. So let's get
1: into a few of these actions here. The first one we we're gonna talk about is cross-ownership.
0: Right. And so there have historically been rules against the ownership of newspapers and televisions in a single television stations in a single market. And the the origin of those rules is really the principle of diversity of voices and that it would be a bad thing for the newspaper and the television station in a single place to be owned by a single entity.
1: So the information being controlled by one company that gets to the people of
0: the town. It's not that the old rules on cross-ownership hold up and that the world hasn't changed, but that there wasn't any kind of sophisticated discussion about what kind of regulation and policies could actually help create diversity of voices. I think the thing that's most concerning here is just the across-the-board struggle of local media uh, to survive in in the current environment, uh, the, the current environment, in other words, um, digital distribution, which really doesn't incentivize localism. And so I think it's not that nothing needed to happen, but the elimination of rules and uh, sort of a blunt instrument uh, approach was probably not the best way to go. But uh, given the what we've seen of the FCC in the, in recent months, and not at all surprising.
1: We can talk about local journalism more in a little bit, but let, let's talk about another story that's facing the FCC right now. Pending final approval from the FCC is a rule that will relax the station ownership laws, raising the rate from around 40% now to
0: 72%. Well, and so there's two parts here. I mean, one is whether or not the FCC is going to allow the merger between Sinclair and Tribune to go through, and the big stumbling block there is the number of stations that would bring under a single owner. And so, the FCC is just now starting to look at the station cap rule, um, which is, it has developed over time, but really for about the last two decades, it's been um, stagnant at around 40 41%. Um, again, that weird 41% as a result of a previous merger that was given a waiver. But a jump to something like 72%, that's not just a, a waiver for a, a specific deal. Uh, that really would be a fundamental rewriting of the policy regarding how many stations an entity can own. So um, why those rules exist, you know, in the same way that there were the cross-ownership rules about local voices, diversity of ownership and, and, and local voices have been the, the guiding logic behind most FCC action um, and letting one entity own enough broadcast stations to reach that percentage of the country is um, significantly opposite both of those regulatory goals.
1: And let's go on to kind of the biggest story that's based the FCC, this year, and that's net neutrality. Two years ago, a Tom Wheeler-led FCC in the Barack Obama administration put in rules that reclassified internet as a, quote, Title II entity, and that put in rules that essentially called all traffic on the internet equal, and Ajit Pai's FCC voted along party lines to revoke this in the couple weeks before this podcast was released. There's been a lot of talk about the impact of this and what we might see as a result. Like, will we see itemized Internet packages in the same way that cable is itemized right now? Will we see companies being forced to pay to speed up their traffic? Amanda, where do you find the impact to be?
0: Uh, I think, and we'll talk about this, um, or I'll hit on this later in the show um, in terms of things looking forward, and I think the the impact at this point is unknown, um, but I think the two places that would be most of concern are what this means for startups in terms of competing with companies that use the internet to distribute and will be able to pay whatever fees that internet service providers demand, um, and also what it means in terms of self-owned content, where you increasingly have situations like Comcast owning NBC and various other cable channels, and to pivot to yet another and a connected topic, um, which is the AT&T-Time Warner merger, which is Also, still in limbo um, after being turned down by the Department of Justice, now um, being re-adjudicated through the courts. Um, And so, last year we were this time we were talking about the deal and its implications. But um, it's been a long year, and it's still in the news.
1: Yeah, the Trump administration has sued to block the deal. Now, no one's really certain what the actual reason is. The The rough speculation that was going around in the news was it was retaliation. For CNN's coverage of Trump, but I mean, as much as I believe that we were talking before the show, and you don't, Amanda.
0: Well, I, who knows what's going on, right? But I think looking at the merits of the case, the argument for letting the deal go through is that they are playing in two different spaces. But what that this does is vertical th- integration, right? AT and T as a distributor, Time Warner as a content creator. So this this actually makes it quite like the Comcast-NBC merger. Which
1: was allowed through by the Barack Obama With with a
0: huge number of carve-outs and special clauses that would prevent Comcast from using the NBC content strategically. And I think what we're seeing here is AT&T trying to get a hold of Exclusive content that would make its pipes, its competitive position in offering internet service, more attractive than that of, let's say, Comcast in a market that that it competes with.
1: It's something that net neutrality going down could allow. It could allow AT&T to prioritize Time Warner content.
0: Well, it's not. So, I mean, yes, net neutrality enhances the consequence. But even if net neutrality were in place, it would still be problematic (laughs) in terms of, It would put AT&T in a position where they could say, if you want to have HBO, then you have to subscribe to AT&T. So the ability to use content exclusively. And so some of the provisions that were in that Comcast-NBC deal required Comcast to make NBC and the content that they own available to all competitors. And that is a crucial part of, of this kind of a deal.
1: But let's get into another big media merger and this is one that broke over the past few weeks and prior to the release of this episode. Disney buying Fox for $52 billion. So as a result of this deal, Disney would be picking up things like a majority stake in Hulu, 20th Century Fox Movie Studio, um, and the associated rights that go along with it. Some of Fox's cable networks, including FX and National Geographic. But But. there are very important things that will not be included in this deal.
0: Right. So this is not Fox Broadcasting System. It's not Fox Sports 1 and 2 or Fox News. And
1: the rights associated with Fox Sports. However, the regional sports networks, like the Yes Network and the Big Ten Network, would go to Disney.
0: Yeah, which is a small part of the deal that I haven't quite figured out. But anyway. It's a
1: small part, but those are probably some of the most valued properties in Fox, those regional sports networks.
0: Again, why separate those from Fox Sports 1 and 2?
1: So ESPN can take ownership of them. I mean, it it really is to bolster ESPN and their regional presence.
0: So, of course, we should also note that because this is still so new, it is still pending consideration. You know, in all honesty, I I think there are less red flags here than there are in the AT&T Time Warner because, you know we are very quickly shifting into a world in which the pipes, the companies that control the pipes, are the most powerful. Um, and I think the, one of the reasons why we're seeing a deal like this is because content companies are sort of recognizing that without any kind of distribution um, play, that they're that, that at a disadvantage, and as well a need to gain the kind of scale that will help them compete with Companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Netflix, to a degree, you know, all these companies that have just enormous amounts of cash on hand and that are you know just throwing it um, into original production. And so I think that's you know really where this deal is coming from. You know, is is it problematic to um, further consolidate content ownership? Sure, but we're also seeing the underlying business of television, or what we've called television, change in some really important ways because of the net neutrality ruling. Unlike the current situation where cable providers have been actually kept at bay by the content ownership company and the, the, the clout that they have, we are entering a new economic order where instead of the service providers paying the content owners for content, we may have content owners paying to be distributed. So in many ways, this is the dream of the cable-slash-internet industries, to to be able to really call the shots and make up for these decades of, um, you know, these complicated retransmission deals where Disney could just threaten to walk away if they weren't willing to pay more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a huge reallocation of power, and so, you know... That, I believe, is the, the the foundation upon which this this deal's been put forward. Yeah,
1: th- this deal, to me, is about content ownership. And it's about Disney wanting to bolster the content that it can make available to others by acquiring things like, you know, Fox's really large library of TV shows and movies, acquiring the Avatar franchise so they can launch that. You know, as much as I'm very much looking forward to the inevitable Avengers movie with Marvel, or with Avengers movie with X-Men, it's, it's about getting this content so they can have more to sell to consumers when they launch their portal in a couple years.
0: Well, I think the, the short version here is if you don't have distribution, you better have all the content. Whereas Disney has been really successful in the last decade or so, really buying up key pieces of intellectual property, uh, this is just more of that.
1: So let's move into the music industry. And we haven't talked about that a huge amount. On the show this year, we've kind of been focused in other areas, but the music business as a whole is on track to show its largest year-over-year growth in twenty years.
0: Yeah, and I think you know what's notable to me is really just the change in the narrative, I and mean, we've really left the the decade or so in which the story was nothing but doom and gloom. The record industry is going to die, and it, it certainly hasn't been easy, and it's not it's not without consequence. Uh, but we've seen some really significant pivots. Um, First, um, the emergence of downloaded music for, for payment, but now the dominant revenue stream for the recorded music industry is the revenue that they're receiving from the streaming services such as Spotify.
1: And Apple Music and...
0: And there's a handful of them, right? Yeah, but,
1: all the competitors in that space. As a subscriber to the streaming services, I subscribe to Apple Music myself, I mean... It's great to be able to get all your music kind of in one place and to have, you know, I, it's worth the amount of money I pay to be able to stream as much as I can.
0: Right. And so, you know, it's still a, a work in progress very much in the question about whether artists are being remunerated adequately.
1: Taylor Swift famously had a big battle with Spotify over those rights.
0: Right. And, and we're... We're really starting to see some interesting evolution in the music industry. And one music scholar that I talked to is arguing that uh, playlists are emerging sort of as the new album. In other words, as the form by which music is, is organized. And, and that has fascinating implications for mm-hmm. uh, both the business and the, the, the content of music itself. So uh, on top of all this, of course, we have the new Taylor Swift album. Uh, Swift now is the only act to have four different albums sell a million copies in a week since 1991. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're we're not in an era without big hits. So it'll be interesting to see how this continues to evolve and, and, and what kind of long-term trend it, it develops into.
1: Yeah, I love uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda will tweet out playlists. I don't know if it's once a week or every so often or kind of whenever he feels mm-hmm. like it, but he will put out playlists and curate content in that way. But let's go into podcasts. We're going to talk about that for a hot second because this has been a year of growth for the podcast industry. And our first episode of 2018 is actually going to focus on one podcast company in particular. We're in a year of growth for podcasts, and we might be nearing, quite frankly, a bubble that might pop at some point.
0: Yeah, of course there's there's this huge growth because we're going from something that was really a... a, a It's not a form with a long history. But I think what's also interesting is the growing diversity of the podcast form. um, And there have been some important shifts from a business perspective in terms of the reporting that um, iTunes allows, which might help better uh, measure exactly what these audiences are. Because historically, I think there's been this significant challenge with the metric of merely being how many podcasts are downloaded, which is not at all a, a great predictor of, of what is listened to. Which And
1: who's listening and right, whether which, or not they're listening to the ads.
0: Which is exactly and a crucial piece to, if to the degree that this does seem to be a form that is doing well with advertising in an era in which advertising is struggling in, as the revenue model for so many other media industries.
1: Absolutely. So let's transition to journalism. This has been a year of change for that industry. And let's start out with growth in the digital space. The New York Times, in particular, has had huge growth in their revenue from digital subscriptions in particular and other digital publications. You're starting to see local journalism turn to to paywalls and other such things as a way of raising revenue from their readers.
0: Yeah, and I think we need to get beyond an era in which we silo print from digital because I don't think that's actually the story here I and mean, people want their their content in different formats for different reasons I think the key is what kind of content people are willing to pay for and so the growth that the New York Times has seen is, is largely related to a very specific value proposition um, and I think it's been notable this year um, particularly just in the last few months that some of the the digitally native journalistic outlets have have really started to to struggle a bit, and I think we're getting to a point of reckoning where the recognition of the fact that you can't can't sustain a business out of uh, uh, clickbait and um, you mean
1: that pivot to video isn't working?
0: Oh well, that's very clear. Um, you know, it's just it, it's one of many stories that has have been told um, as. Different businesses have tried to figure out how to make it in this new distribution environment. Um, and so I, I'd expect that we'll continue to see that play out. I mean, again, your revenue model has to be linked to your value proposition. If you aren't actually providing something of value, then you know a quick look, those, those eyeballs are going to go away. If you do offer something of value, you can Uh, find subscribers who will pay for it. And so it's figuring out how to achieve enough scale to support whatever uh, reporting base you need uh, in order to provide that kind of a value proposition.
1: The next story we're going to talk about is something that we've mentioned throughout the year and next year we'll delve a little bit more deeply into, and that's the interaction between news organizations and technology companies like Facebook and Google and in terms of the amount of control those, technolo- those technology companies have over news organizations themselves.
0: Right, and and so part of this is a straight-up business story and has everything to do with whether Facebook allows New York Times to get advertising or the data from when you share a New York Times story on their site, um, but it also, I think, is, is worth noting that, that the... The prevailing attitudes have shifted this year, and I think a lot of that has to do with closer scrutiny that's developing as a result of what we're learning about the 2016 election and the the array of hacking, propaganda, and ma- manipulation evidence that has emerged about the limitations of what various social media services were providing to the extent, not as as social media in terms of messages that, you know, we are all creating about ourselves, but in terms of the central role that these social media companies have had in sharing content that has been created by legacy media industries.
1: Yeah, I mean we're just starting to hear about what happened exactly, and how russian the Russian government was able to manipulate our social media systems to spread fake news and propaganda to our country,
0: as well as the buying possibilities um and the the kind of audiences that can be targeted, I'd expect there to just to be a lot more scrutiny and and that scrutiny may even lead to some regulation and legislation. and so,
1: and a story we want to mention, but probably won't talk a huge amount about, is, there's a, been a lot of mergers related to conservative media and conservative organizations. We've got Sinclair, the extremely conservative local station owner, that puts on essentially right-leaning propaganda onto their networks and forces their station to air.
0: Right, which merging, again, it, yeah. which again is why we pivoting back to that station ownership issue. It's one thing for these outlets to exist. It's an entirely different thing for us to be rewriting rules to raise limits from, uh, you know, roughly 40 percent to 72 percent to allow um, those messages to circulate that widely.
1: Yeah, it's Sinclair merging with Tribune and taking control of all of Tribune stations, which would give it a much wider nationwide presence. And then there's Meredith and Time Inc., which is being done with the help of funding from the Koch brothers, the huge Republican donors.
0: So we'll have to continue to watch and see whether there's a uh, media business story that emerges, you know, centrally there. Um, but uh, that will be an item for 2018. Yeah.
1: Let's go into film and television, which we've talked about a lot of these stories before, but we kind of want to highlight some of the bigger news, pieces of news to come out of 2017. And that includes... Portals and especially the entry of Disney into that space.
0: Right, and it's still announced and hypothetical, so there isn't a ton to say. But um, Disney's been on the record that we'll be seeing a self-branded portal, or two or three, who knows, um, in 2018. And, you know, I think this is part of a a very logical strategy um, in which the content owners initially allowed companies like Netflix to... Function as distributors, and they're recognizing that they're, um, you know, they're in a better better position if they don't use another company as a middleman. Um, And so we're going to just continue to see more development in that area.
1: Yeah, ESPN Plus is due to come in 2018. While Disney's portal itself, I don't believe, is due until 2019.
0: And it's clear that Disney is pushing hard into digital distribution, the purchase of a significant stake in BAM Tech this year, a $1.6 billion purchase, and as well the control of Hulu that comes with the, the Fox purchase, you know, all sort of suggests that Disney will be having a much more robust, direct-to-consumer set of relationships, and so you know, there's considerable business evolution um, not only possible but probable as a result.
1: Earlier in the year, we talked about highs and lows at the box office. After the summer, we did an episode looking at the summer box office and why that might not be the best indicator of the health of the film industry as a whole, but we want to acknowledge that that episode happened and the highs and lows of the box office continued to be present, including the weekend before we are recording this, the $220 million opening for Star Wars The Last Jedi.
0: Right, and beyond that, you know, it wasn't actually a year of really big stories in the film business. I think one thing that caught our eye: some of the new endeavors to try and uh, encourage and expand movie-going behavior, uh, with the Movie Pass service, and then um, Cinemark launching their own subscription service in, in recent weeks. All sort of designed to encourage more frequent movie going.
1: Yeah, I mean, Movie Pass. Initially, it seems like a loss leader um, $10 a month for one movie a day. I mean, I'm personally a subscriber and a big fan of the service because, quite frankly, it pays for itself. In the city of Ann Arbor, it pays for itself in two movies, but I can imagine in the city of New York or the city of L.A., it would pay for itself the first time you go to the movies. And, I mean, I personally think it's something that's going to collapse next year. I'm going to enjoy it for every second that I have it, though.
0: It, it, it's 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 just another space of innovation to, to be watching, and and certainly, otherwise the story is much the same with the studios and uh, the exhibitors in terms of the debates over whether or not there's going to be a new premium VOD window that's going to emerge, whether we'll ever get to day and date release. Uh, so these are not new conversations, but sort of more of the old. Otherwise, in the space of uh, film uh, distribution and exhibition.
1: However, there is a very easy way to break Movie Pass. Movie Pass tickets can only be bought same day. So buying in advance, which is actually a part of Cinemark's mm-hmm. eight ninety nine dollars a month package, moving to reserve seating where theaters sell out, if you want to see a movie, you have to buy your tickets in advance at theaters like the Imagine and Celine here or the New State Theater, which just reopened and is absolutely gorgeous.
0: Right, so I think there are a couple things going on. In some ways, the film exhibition industry is ripe for something to deal with empty seats right mm-hmm. and so um, this is the kind of thing that uh, priceline and you know the the travel industry was very much disrupted by companies that could kind of come in and could basically sell un- hotel rooms and airline tickets that weren't going to be be sold otherwise and so um, you know merely filling up the seats is, is advantageous right because there really is no additional cost to showing a movie to 50 people instead of 49. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're right on in terms of identifying the fact that that business model does not work in, in moments in which there is high demand. But um, you know, my, my expectation is that that's probably not most of the theater situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Well, more at the multiplex. I mean, just in Ann Arbor, we're seeing one of our big multiplexes owned by Cinemark. What they're doing is they're actually tearing out all the seats in their theater and replacing them with recliners. They're reducing their theater capacity, but they're trying to up the comfort, and they're actually moving to reserve seating.
0: Right. So the idea that, that if you want more people to go to the movies, you have to make the experience better. Yeah.
1: We talked a little bit about portals earlier in our episode, but let's get into some of the stories that have come out over there, including how much money they friggin' have. I mean, they have... $15 15 billion dollars was spent on programming for streaming services this year right. that's up from four billion five years ago
0: right and so the biggest stories here so the biggest story here Amazon losing its top execs um, although there were certainly indications that there were uh, there was a struggle with strategy even before uh, some of the allegations of, of sexual harassment were released. Most recently, it seems like Amazon has taken the bait of blockbuster aspirations and and all of the new development announcements coming out from them.
1: Probably Uh, the biggest one is Lord of the Rings, um, which will be a $250 million deal just for the rights to the series before any production happens.
0: Right. And so then over at Hulu, it was probably uh, the biggest story there was the success that uh, the service found with The Handmaid's Tale. But I think we have to have a big question mark about whether or not that is enough uh, to sustain a service. Apple entering the marketplace. Again, I'm not exactly sure why. When you just have so much money to throw around, you need to make your own original content, it seems. Facebook is getting in that game, too. But I think the story across the board, and this goes back to Amazon as well, is that one thing that people who've been in these industries a long time have learned is that money alone is not enough. Um, And so having a vision for what that programming needs to be and a strategy that matches what your service is trying to do. I think there's still a lot of question marks um, about how content and strategy are fitting together for, for all of those companies that I've mentioned.
1: Though probably the biggest success story with that is Netflix. And, you know, we talked earlier in the year about how they were targeting niches and finding little bits with even shows like American Vandal, a little tiny show that was just dropped in there and got a lot of buzz as a result.
0: And certainly. I mean, and Netflix continues to dominate the space by every possible measure. Uh, and I think the interesting story in, in that regard has to do with some of their acquisitions, um, buying their own IP by purchasing Miller World. Um, the signing bu- of Shonda yeah, Rhimes to an yeah, overall deal. they're not deal. buying Shonda Rhimes, but they're buying Shonda Rhimes, right? Yeah, they're, so-
1: they're paying her, and she's going to produce all her content for Netflix now.
0: And I think the other story that I'm – that ha- development over the course of the year with Netflix that I'm having trouble finding enough reporting to really feel confident about, you know, knowing what's going on is the development of a, an actual Netflix studio and the potential of Netflix doing its own production increasingly as opposed to purchasing from other studios, which has been uh, dominantly the case until recently. And so it's certainly a strategy that makes perfect sense and it, it matches effectively what's going on with many of the other vertically integrated uh, content companies that are now pivoting into digital distribution as well. Um, But that's an important thing to note as well. And then the other last piece there was the story that HBO is planning to expand its HBO Go slash Now service globally in 2018. And and certainly HBO has a a decent international footprint in terms of the existing cable relationships. But of of all of the competitive relationships out there, I think that may put HBO on par to actually compete with Netflix in a way in which you have services that are somewhat similar. I think one of the biggest frustrations I've continued to have with coverage of this sector has been the degree to which sort of any company that streams video is assumed to be competing with each other. And instead of acknowledging that there's actually uh, an array of different kinds of mass services, there we'd have Netflix, Amazon, um, you know, but even though uh, Netflix is mostly television at this point, uh, Amazon and Hulu have a lot of movies, Um, Hulu has, you know, been very much connected simply to its owners. And so the idea that you know every service is going to be competing uh, in the same way or to be functioning as a substitute, I think, is is a is a misunderstanding of the industry.
1: We we had a lot of niche services in the past, a couple of which actually closed this year. Fullscreen and CISO went away. I mean, those services were not intended to compete with Netflix as much as fill in a gap that Netflix might not have been serving
0: correct and so i think the really the story here for 2018 is is more development in terms of whether or not the marketplace will remain multifaceted and and as different companies try and figure out how niche you can be to survive and you know again i think it comes back to value proposition. Uh, If you are offering content that is unavailable elsewhere that people really value, they will pay for it, and you just then have to figure out what is your price point in terms of how much do you charge that um, will keep them coming and serve your library.
1: We also want to acknowledge here a story that isn't really a huge story, but continues to pervade. And that's the idea of cord cutting and a declining subscriptions for cable providers.
0: Right. And I think in, in some ways, despite the discourse about cord cutting persisting for quite a while now, um, it it was more than just a uh, hypothetical. Um, right now, the numbers that I'm seeing, it's that it looks like 1.36 million uh, homes uh, effectively cut cords this year. But
1: isn't that like a very small percentage of cable... Subscribers as a whole.
0: Uh, I think the number I'd compare it to is that there are 115 million U.S. television households, right? So this this isn't like the sky is falling, um, but I think the people who follow these sorts of things they they are concerned whenever you know, numbers are increasing, and so this was an increase over last year. We are we are not at the end of this. I think we are actually getting to the middle, and the middle is an interesting place because. It is a place of experimentation and abundance. Um, And so there are a lot of different services and types of services increasingly coming to market, trying to figure out if they can survive.
1: Like Hulu's cable service, YouTube Red.
0: Right. Um, Swing TV. And YouTube Live, I think it is. So, I mean, one of the new things in the marketplace was the emergence of these... Packages of channels, basically just a cable package, but you—they're internet distributed. They're often called—they're called, called V for virtual <laughs> and multi-channel video programming distributor. And yes, you know they—they they are now competing with Sling and uh, Directv Now. But importantly, there hasn't been huge take-up of any of these or all of them in aggregate. But instead, what is really developing is is more variation that actually matches the variation in U.S. households. So it, it, it's really a curious thing if you think about you know, how many things are priced. But you know if you have a house full of, let's say, um, two parents, two kids, um, you pay for cable subscription in the same way that a person who lives alone does. Um, and so, even though that person who lives alone probably didn't need that giant package. There was no other option. And so what a lot of these services are offering is greater flexibility and and specificity of offerings to the degree that there are still many family households you know, that that bundle will continue to persist and, and offer some value. Uh, but in other cases, you know, the ability to just have Netflix or Netflix in a package of broadcast channels or broadcast uh, channels that you can get over the air. We're just getting to an environment where people can pick and choose um, an amount of television uh, service that better matches their needs.
1: Let's transition into another industry, a pet industry of my own. I've got a couple of stories to share from the theater industry this year. First one involves the demise of Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. I'm going to try to tell this story as quickly and succinctly as I can. When Josh Groban left the show, the producers of Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812, so I might butcher this pronunciation, but they replaced Josh Groban with Oak Onadawan, who was a member of the original cast of Hamilton. And he was doing okay, but not great numbers and Mandy Patinkin became available to take on the lead role. So what they did was they decided they were going to cut Oaks' run short in the show and replace him with Mandy Patinkin. However, this created a huge uproar among especially the black community associated with theater, and Cynthia Erivo was a big, the star Tony Award winner for The Color Purple, over the replacement of the African American Oak with Mandy Patinkin, a white guy. As a result, there was a huge controversy, Oak stopped talking to the producers, and essentially what happened was Mandy Patinkin bowed out, Oak left the show, and the show died because nobody wanted to be associated with it, because, you know, not many people are going to go see a musical about an 80-page slice of War and Peace without a big name. In terms of what we can learn from this story, I mean, really what happened was the producers made a decision but they didn't consider the optics of it. Now, I genuinely believe the producers made what is considered to be a business decision by replacing, you know, a, a less well-known name with a well-known name who hadn't been in a musical in a while and would guarantee, was guaranteed to sell tickets. But I think we're going to see producers being more careful about how they announce things and making sure everybody's on board before announcing a big cast change like that. And what else happened in theater this year? Well, there's one particular story I want to focus on here, and that's a story from Variety that talks about how Broadway is moving especially into blockbuster productions. I mean, this started with Hamilton. There have been blockbusters around for a while. Wiki consistently sells out, Lion King consistently sells out, but Hamilton really took things to another level. And as a result, especially Hamilton, kind of led the trend of ri- raising ticket prices to levels that hadn't really been seen ever in Broadway theater. I mean, we have Hamilton charging obscene prices with top tickets of eight hundred and fifty. Bruce Springsteen charging high prices. Next year, we have the rival of Harry Potter and Frozen, but there's not really as much room for you know other shows if you have these huge blockbusters mm-hmm. and. Also, in this story, it talks about how plays are being blocked out in some ways because what you're seeing is you're seeing plays or you're seeing musicals going into smaller theaters. Like, Dear Evan Hansen is running in the Music Box Theater right now, which is 800 seats. It's a very intimate space for a very intimate show. You're seeing the band visit in the 1,000 seat Barrymore. Those theaters are traditionally used for straight plays, but since you have these blockbuster musicals that are settling in for long runs in the larger theaters, that's kind of boxing out the smaller musicals and forcing them into smaller theaters, which are also boxing out plays as a result. And this is coming off a season, the 2016 to 2017 season was very rough on new plays. You had a lot of shows like Indecent and Sweat debut and really not catch on at all. But yet, this upcoming season has many more new plays than new musicals, and many more plays and plays revivals than musical and musical revivals, especially in the spring. You're going to see a lot of plays come in, being led by Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, and a revival of Angels in America with Nathan Lane, and you also have Meteor Shower with Amy Schumer, uh, Keegan-Michael Key, and Laura Benanti leading the thread. You're going to see a season of plays, after a really weak season for straight plays on the whole, on Broadway. And in terms of what to look forward to in 2018, I've already mentioned Harry Potter and Frozen. The question is, will they settle into a long run, given how early tickets have sold and how well tickets have sold for those shows? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. And then how does this season with a lot of new plays do as a whole? That transitions into kind of, you know, other stories that we're going to be keeping our eye on 2018. The first one, what happens as a result of the net neutrality vote from the FCC?
0: Yeah, I think although there have been tons of op eds, you know, we really just don't know what's going to happen. And I'm reminded of the uh, sort of a moral tale about a boy um, who's trying to um, you know, prove this this uh, woman who can um, make predictions false by uh, he has a, a bird in his hand and um, you know he's he's set to trick her um, by asking her whether it's alive or if it's dead um, because whatever she says he'll. Care of and situation. Amanda is
1: closing her hands yes, together. Yes. I know podcasts are a visual medium.
0: Very helpful. And and so, you know, that's where we are with net neutrality. You know, it, it is in the hands of the ISPs. Uh, they have they have said all kinds of things. Um, and I, I think the fact that they put as much money into... Pushing for the repeal is is really louder than any of the words, um, but we will find out in in the coming year how the macro contours of the industry um, are redrawn as ISPs um, are are paid by content creators uh, instead of paying for content, which is it's such a reversal of how. Uh, media distribution has worked in, in at least video until now, in the United States at least, um, that I, I don't think we can really even begin to anticipate the ways in which it could change things.
1: And that assumes that some battles that will happen in the courts don't somehow overturn the rules that were done by the FCC. I mean, we have sure. a, a few state attorney generals stewing yeah. to block these rules from coming into yeah. place. So it really is an open question as to what... and. You know, if we turn around in 2018 and do this episode again, we could very well be having a very different conversation.
0: (laughs) I'm not enough of a legal scholar to uh, fully appreciate on what grounds uh, this battle will continue to go forward, but it does seem that that's the case. There are a lot of pending mergers. I think of all of them, the the Sinclair merger is probably the most important.
1: It might have the biggest impact on the media we see, especially on a local level.
0: Right. And so that's the one to, I'd say, particularly watch there. Um, And I think I'd hope for a more sophisticated conversation about the nature of, of portal competition and really, hopefully as well, some greater nuance in terms of how we understand things like media versus tech and recognize that actually neither of those categories are meaningful. Um, and instead uh, evaluate industries based on what they do, what they, uh, how they make money, um, in order to, to draw some smarter conclusions.
1: So we thought we would end this episode on a happier note. We talked about a lot of stories that really kind of actually make us both angry. So we're going to talk about some of our favorite things that we've seen this year. Amanda, what do you want to highlight?
0: Um, In terms of TV, I think it's Better Things, John Oliver, and Halton and Catch Fire, which I've discussed before, so that's it. I was inspired by my class this semester to subscribe to The Economist, Um, so that's on my list of favorite things.
1: My dad is a fan of The Economist.
0: Uh, And then I also wanted to highlight a book Um, in that same class, the senior seminar on the future of the business of media, Um, I used a book called uh, The Content Trap by a Harvard business professor named Bharat Anand. Um, And it's been helpful in in adding some complexity to the kind of questions that we talk about here at Media Business Matters. Um, It comes at them from a little bit different of an angle than my usual media studies uh, focus. And so if you like this podcast, you might like Bharat Anand's The Content Trap. Alex, how about you? What were your favorite things this year?
1: Well, I've talked about a few of these things on the show before, so I'll just mention the ones I've talked about before briefly. The th- beautiful third and final season of The Leftovers, the hilarious and terrifying movie Get Out, which I hope will get a lot of awards come awards season early next year, *Lord's Melodrama, which is an excellent emotional album, the musical Dear Evan Hansen, which made me feel more than anything I've seen in a Broadway theater in a long time, and then there are a couple of new things. Over Thanksgiving weekend, I saw the new musical The Band's Visit, musical about an Egyptian band who, through a pronunciation confusion, gets sent to a random town in the Israeli desert, and they don't have a bus until morning, so they stay overnight in this town, and it's about their interactions with the town people. And, you know, the, the mood of the city itself, it's got a really gorgeous score by David Yazbek. I mean, it, it it's a really powerful musical. And then podcast-wise, I've talked about Sam Sanders. It's been a minute, a lot. So I want to highlight the Daily, the New York Times podcast that uh, open that runs five days a week and really is a home to some good long form reporting, or I guess short form long. Like it's shorter than it's each episode's about twenty to thirty minutes, but. They do deeper dives into stories than, say, something like NPR's Great Up First, which is great at giving you highlights of what's happening. The Daily will dive deeper, usually cover one or two topics a day, and the reporting they do on that show is really interesting. I'm a big fan.
0: Well, in 2017, when the biggest podcast story can come from a newspaper. Or a a traditional newspaper, uh, clearly it's the case that the media industries continue to be in flux and change.
1: Absolutely. And that brings an end to this year of Media Business Matters. I know Amanda and I are very happy with the work we've done this year. And if you want to go back and listen to episodes, we mentioned a couple, but we also have our series of interviews on the movie business, the theater industry, and public media which we're really happy with and proud of, and you can listen to those on our podcast feeds, which you can find at Amandalots.com by clicking on the podcast link at the top of the page. And you can also find our show on Apple Podcasts in the Google Play Store. Subscribe on those platforms, rate and review as it helps other listeners find the show. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter?
0: At Dr. TV Lots, D R T V L O T Z.
1: And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I N T N E R. We really want to give a genuine thank you to our listeners who listen as we finish our second year of Media Business Matters. And we hope that you continue listening into 2018. We'll be back soon with a really cool interview.